Well, Psalm 41 is uh, the next in our series of, of looking at the different places, especially in the Psalms, where we are told what it means to be blessed. What it means to be blessed. You know, that word gets thrown around a lot today, as we've noted over the past month or so. Uh, but we want to know what God's word says uh, that being blessed looks like. And so we're looking today at Psalm 41, which is one of the three psalms in the Psalter that begin with uh, a statement about what it means to be blessed. So let's hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant and infallible word. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, if you search the phrase, thinking is hard, uh, on the internet, if you Google it, you're going to find a bunch of uh, articles dis discussing this dilemma, that thinking is difficult. And I think that's a, a hallmark of our society today, that, that thinking is, has become really passe. Feeling is where it's at today. It's, it's not what you think. Uh, it's what you feel that's most important. Feeling is what's in vogue. And there are many today who certainly don't let the facts or truth get in the way of the way they feel. Psalmist today here is calling us to think. And that's what we want to do today. We want to consider some things. Uh, according to this psalm, starts right off, to be blessed, to be happy, to flourish, to prosper, to grow, to be all that we can be, we must consider something. We must give careful thought to something and come to an understanding about something. And that's where the stress lies in this psalm, in our thinking. So as some of my teachers uh, from my elementary days used to say, Let's get our thinking caps on, students, and let us consider uh, three things today. First of all, we want to consider the poor. Then we want to consider David. And then finally, we want to consider Christ. Well, first, we must consider the poor because that's what this psalm is all about, isn't it? Blessed is the one who considers the poor. The one who considers the poor, he's the, he's the one, or she's the one, who will be blessed, who will be happy, who will flourish themselves in their life. I want to consider a few things about this as we 
consider, think about, dwell upon. What does this mean? First, what does it mean to consider? Now, as I said before, and as, been, as I've been saying, it means to give careful thought and attention to and come to an understanding about something. But it, but it also takes a further step, which is implied here, and that is uh, to have a proper response once we've thought about it, once we understand it. Now, how do we appropriately respond? So, to consider includes three things. Careful thinking, a growing understanding, and a proper response. So think, understand, and respond. That's what we are to consider. That's how we are to consider today. That's what David is calling us to do in this psalm this morning. Specifically, think about, understand, and respond appropriately to the poor. That's the second thing we've got to ask about this. What does it mean? mean uh, what does the word poor mean? Now, the poor are w- the weak and helpless. And the, 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 ver- the word that is used here in the Hebrew, it, it certainly can mean the physically poor, but it also includes the weak and the helpless as well. You'll notice that the psalm speaks more about bodily weakness than anything else. Verse 3, uh, uh, the psalm speaks of the sickbed and illness and, and health. Uh, And David's example in verses 4 through 10 seems to be referring to an episode in his life where he was experienced some grave illness. I believe Psalm 38 speaks of this illness as as well, though we don't have a record of it in the life of David that's recorded for us in in the history books uh, of the Bible. So the poor here, uh, according to this psalm, are those who are going through a difficult time, through a time of suffering. Uh, some, some trial or tribulation or difficulty in life, or t- turmoil. And that turmoil, that difficulty can be financial, it can be physical, a health problem, it can be a spiritual problem, it can be a mental or emotional problem, it can be a, a relational problem. I mean, the problems that, that, the, that we have in this world are legion. There's no limit to the, the problems that we can have. And, and when it comes to some of these problems, we really do get a grip on the fact that we are weak and helpless and that we can't solve our problems or all of our problems or some of our problems or some of these big problems that we have. So the word poor here has a very broad meaning. Uh, we, can, we, can, uh, we can see a lot of people are described as poor or weak or helpless here. But I want to narrow it down because the fact that this is a psalm narrows it down because this is a, a song. It was composed and, and there's some notes to it. Uh, there's an original tune to it. I, I wonder if in heaven uh, David will entertain us with the original compositions of these psalms and how he sang them back in the day. Won't that be delightful to hear that, the original version of Psalm 41 or, or our favorite song? But these, these psalms, all 150 of them, were sung in worship. The people of God lifted these psalms up to God and, and sang them. So these, uh, these, two, these, these, these songs were for God's people. And when we consider the poor, especially if you think about Israel, that nation, and their worship together, they would be considering the poor in their midst. 
the poor in Israel, the poor amongst the covenant people. So I believe this is talking to us about uh, the poor who are, the, the weak, the helpless, who are part of the covenant community or the church, if we extrapolate it to our day. Now this doesn't mean that we should ignore the poor that are all around us, the poor who are not part of the church. There are other places in scripture where we are to consider anyone whom we encounter uh, who is in a state of difficulty, we are to consider their case and, and help them. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, reiterates this issue. But I believe in this case, in, in this psalm, uh, I believe we are to consider those people who are going through difficult times who are believers. And I, and I have a very good reason for thinking that this psalm is saying that, and I'll explain it to you. Um, because we have a tendency to judge wrongly in the case of believers who are suffering. You think about that. Uh, when we see someone going through a difficult time and, and we, we wonder automatically why. why. Why is that happening to them? Why are they experiencing that illness? Why are they experiencing that loss? Why are they experiencing that financial difficulty? And, and we may come to some very harsh conclusions about that. We have a tendency to do that. You remember Job's friends, right? You know, Job suffered. Uh, he, was a, he was a wealthy man. He was a healthy man. He was a righteous man. He was a family man. And all of that, except the righteousness, was taken away. Not because he was unrighteous, but that's what Job's friends thought. They considered his case, thought about it, thought they understood it. They didn't understand it appropriately, and they responded inappropriately to Job, even sinfully to Job. They looked at his case and said, Job, obviously you've sinned against God and God is judging you. You've done something wrong. And Job said, I haven't done anything wrong. Over and over again for about 40 chapters. They're arguing about this. And in the end, Job is vindicated. Uh, he was not suffering because he was a sinner. He suffered because he was a righteous man. And Satan came against him. And God has his purposes. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But we tend to judge others harshly who are going through difficult times. Also, we tend to judge ourselves harshly when we're going through difficult times. When something bad happens in your life, what do we say? Why me, Lord? What did I do wrong? Why are you coming against me? Why are you allowing this to happen in my life? Well, we can come to the conclusion, as we often do, that, that God is somehow displeased with me. God has abandoned me. God is against me now. Maybe it's something I've done. What did I do? We ask those type of questions. That's because we are not considering correctly the relationship God has to those who are going through difficult times. We're not considering and understanding rightly why God might be allowing ourselves to go through difficult times. Now if you look at uh, the, the the second part of verse 1 down through verse 3, we have an interpretive difficulty here. And I'm, I'm picking a path, 
and I'm not picking the other path, and I'll explain that in a moment. Um, it says here, Blessed are those who consider the poor. And then it says, In the day of the trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Who is him? Who is he talking about here? There are two ways that this can be taken. One way is that him refers to the one who considers the poor. That person who is merciful to the poor, who considers the case of the poor, who does something about the poor, well, he's going to be blessed. And there are a lot of commentators that take it that way. But I don't think that's the case. I think the him refers to the poor. The him here in these verses end of 1, 2, and 3, are talking about the poor. David tells us, consider the poor. Think about the poor. And here's what I want you to think about the poor, especially the poor who are believers. Because the poor who are believers, in the day of the trouble, the Lord delivers him. You may think he's cursed by God. You may come to that conclusion that God has abandoned you, but that's not God's character. That's not what God is doing here. The Lord delivers. The Lord protects. The Lord keeps you alive. The Lord calls you blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on a sickbed, and in his illness, you restore him to full health. That's what we are to consider the poor. And here's the truth of it. If you are a believer, if you are one of God's children, even though you may go through suffering, you may go through difficult times, But God has his purposes in all those things. And that's true of every believer. The Lord refines us through difficulties. The Lord grows us through adversity. He disciplines us in our problems. And he he makes us more holy, more like Christ. And he's working on us, consuming the dross, refining us like gold is refined, getting rid of everything that's that's not Christ-like. They asked a sculptor one time, you know, he, uh, a man was interviewing the sculptor and said, you know, how do you take that block of granite and turn it into a horse? He says, well, the, the sculptor said, well, I just knock away everything that's not a horse. And that's kind of a picture of what the Lord is doing to us. He's knocking away everything that's not Christ-like. But that can only be said of his people. Now, this does not mean that that believers are always shielded from ill health and problems and difficulties. If you take that, that's called having, and I'll use a theological term here, having an over-realized eschatology. An over-realized eschatology. And what that means, eschatology is the study of the end thing, end times or the end things. One day, when Christ returns and the new heavens and new earth are inaugurated, and death is defeated and sin is no more, we will live in a place where the Lord has completely delivered us. The Lord will have protected us and brought us to that place, and we will live forever, and we will be blessed beyond our imaginations. And our enemies will be destroyed, and there will be no more sickness. There will only be health. 
No more sin, no more brokenness. And overrealized eschatology says that we're supposed to have those things now. No, because we all die, right? We're all going to die in one of three ways. We're going to die tragically before you know, we reach old age. Or we're going to get sick, a disease, and then we'll die. Or we're going to get old and our bodies are going to wear out. For those people who say that, oh, we should always be healthy, <laughs> that's, that's not thinking about it very clearly. We will all succumb to the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of our bodies, sooner or later. We are going to die unless Christ returns and saves us from that fate. So to say that these things are fully ours now is saying too much. But we do enjoy some of these things and we have the confidence that even if we die, if we're believers, it's not the end. We live forever. All these things are ours. Death is a, a mere uh, translation into heaven to be with the Lord, to be made perfect in holiness, and to wait that time where Christ returns and reunites us with our bodies in a real physical existence in the new heavens and new earth where we will live without the presence of sin or death or any of these things ever again. So, don't have an overrealized eschatology, but for believers we can have confidence in the midst of suffering that difficulties come but the Lord has a purpose behind them all and he's doing something in us maybe we can't see it or understand it but he's doing something so consider your brothers and sisters in Christ when they're suffering consider what you know, maybe the Lord's doing something in their lives encourage them in that encourage them through that difficulty Point them to Christ always. And for yourself, don't be quick to, to, to bring judgment upon yourself, but trust that the Lord is working all things to the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Well, let's quickly consider David. Uh, I, I'm just going to not spend a whole lot of time here, but David gives us his own example in verses 4 through 10 and then 11 and 12. He is telling us his situation and then in verses 11 and 12, he's telling us how he is correctly interpreting and understanding the situation. So here's David. Uh, he's crying out to God. He says, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me. It literally is, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. And then he goes on to talk about this illness that he has. If we combine this with, with Psalm 38, that speaks of, also speaks of an illness that David suffered, we know he believes that this illness was caused because of his own sinfulness. So even in the midst of his own mistake, his own sin, his, his, his own uh, bad actions, he's suffering some consequences for that, he believes. And his enemies are piling on. You know, when will he die? He's on, his, he's on his deathbed. We're rooting for you to die. We hope you perish. And somebody who acts like a friend comes to see him and is saying all these nice things. Oh, I hope you get better. And then when he leaves, you know, he's thinking in his heart, oh, I don't think you get better. I hope you die. And then when he leaves, he's saying, yeah, to his friends. He's on his deathbed. He's going down. Yay. All who hate me, verse 7, 
whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. That word deadly there is belial, destruction, wickedness. Something because of his sin, something that's destructive and wicked is, is, is taken over him, and he's not going to rise from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So in the middle of his suffering, he, he is not being shown mercy, but he's leaning on the Lord for mercy. But you, O Lord, verse 10, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Now, I don't think that's an appropriate prayer for all of us. We're not supposed to take vengeance. But, God, but he was king, right? And one of the purposes of government, and one of the purposes of the king is to bear the sword. And his enemies would be enemies of the nation. And so he was wanting to come back to, to fulfill his role, his calling as the king of Israel. But you see here, uh, he, he is thinking correctly about it because he comes to verse 11 and he, and he knows, even in the midst of this terrible suffering that he's going through, where everybody's against him, he says, By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have, uh, uh, you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Any other translation has, but you have upheld me in my integrity. There's one little preposition there in the Hebrew, and it can be translated other ways. I think it's more appropriate to say, you will uphold me in my integrity. This implies that because he has integrity, God's going to uphold him. But he's already confessed that he's a sinner, and that even the situation he finds himself in is a result of his own sin. So he's going to continue to have integrity. He's going to believe the right thing. He's going to do the right thing, even though everybody's against him, even though he's suffering. And he knows and he trusts that God will ultimately deliver him. And you uphold me in my integrity. You, you help me to remain with my integrity. And you will set me in your presence forever. So his relationship with the Lord is intact, even in the midst of trial and suffering. You see... He understands it. What do we think when we're going through suffering or when we see someone else suffering? Well, they've done something to make God mad and God doesn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. Or God doesn't want, doesn't, obviously doesn't love me or, or, or want to take care of me because I'm going through this difficult thing. See, David says, mm -mm, no, you're going to hold on to me and have me in your presence forever. That's a promise from God to us believers who are suffering. Well, David always points us to Christ. And in conclusion, we should consider Christ. One greater than David. And of course, Christ wasn't a sinner, but he suffered more than we could ever imagine. And he actually explains Judas using this psalm. In John 13, 18, he quotes from Psalm 41 where he has washed the feet of the disciples. They're in the upper room. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He was betrayed. Jesus was. How do we consider Christ? You know, we, we consider ourselves in our suffering. We consider others when they're suffering. We can consider David, and, and we wonder why is he suffering. Why did Christ suffer? And we should consider that. He suffered to free us from ever having to suffer ultimately again. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And it goes on. But you see, he keeps saying, we esteemed him. And you could substitute the word, we considered him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. We considered that he was rejected by God. But the exact opposite was true, wasn't it? He keeps, this, the, the, Isaiah here keeps saying, we thought one way about it, but then our thinking was corrected. Our thinking was corrected because he suffered not because of his sin, not because he was rejected by God because of his sin, but because he bore our sin. That's why he was rejected. That's why he was afflicted. That's why he was smitten. So if we miss the reason why Christ suffered, if we don't consider it rightly, well, we can reject him. But when we understand it correctly, that this is the reason that he suffered. To free us from ever having to suffer one day. Well, that's what we should consider. That's what we should hold on to. That's what we should consider, even in the midst of our trials. Consider Christ, who, for the joy that was set before him, despised, uh, you know, carried the cross, or endured the cross. He despised the shame of it for the joy of seeing us saved to seeing us freed, to become his, his people. I want to encourage you all today to interpret your own struggles rightly and lean upon this one who has borne our sufferings in his soul on the cross for us. And he has been raised up to be our king, to be our God, the one who protects us even through the fire and the flames. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this encouraging word. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider correctly who you are and what you're doing in our lives, that we may not know the specifics, we may not fully and completely understand it, but Lord, so many times we are tempted to misinterpret things and to demean your character, your character as a merciful God and one who has steadfast love. It's hard for us to believe. Help our unbelief, Lord. Father, we pray that you would grant us all a deeper faith in the midst of the difficulties, to trust in you, the one who loved the world so much that you gave your only Son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.